is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. In for Rob Archer today, I'm Chris Seedens. And I'm Charles Feldman. Let the artificial intelligence wars begin. We already have Microsoft's ChatGPT. Now Google is getting into the game. It's going to test Bard as in you know, Shakespeare. Google is hyping Bard as being able to do things like explain complex subjects in a simple way and helping people figure out lunch based on what's left in the refrigerator as if they can't figure that out themselves. <laughs> we go in depth into who has the upper hand right now. President Biden, of course, getting ready for his State of the Union address tonight. It's his first, by the way, in a Republican-controlled House chamber. And we're going to analyze the president's body language and how he can use it to command the audience in person and, of course, on television. Well, more people are dying these days in California than at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. We go in depth into why this is happening. Harry Styles making a comment Beyonce fans didn't find so fashionable at the Grammys. We'll tell you what he said and if Beyonce really did get snubbed out of album of the year. But we begin with AI wars. Aaron Rafferty, CEO of the tech startup company Standard Dow. Aaron, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on. So uh, from what I've read so far from both Microsoft and from Alphabet, of course, which is the parent company of, of Google, both companies think that AI and their entries into it, uh, in the one case, uh, ChatGPT, in the other case now, Bard, are going to be game changers, that it's going to really change the way all of us, humans, that is, how we deal with the Internet. Are they right? Yeah, I think they're absolutely right. You know, we're already seeing the implications of ChatGPT. Within a month, you already had a million users of that of that program. And that was because, you know, OpenAI, who had been around for five, six years, developing the back end of, you know, what will be a general AI model, uh, brought together and brought forward a program that was actually very functional and usable for people in regular society. You know, you have businesses using it. You have uh, BuzzFeed that went from uh, actually getting their staff of writers uh, to going full-time with ChatGPT and using that engine. Uh, and you already saw a huge stock increase from that process. Um, I think it was a two, 300% gain on the public market. Um, I think regardless, what we're going to see from both sides is, uh, you know, Bing and uh, Google search are going to be changed forever. Either uh, those revenue generating mo models are going to be shifting or uh, they're, they're not going to be used as much uh, in the future. Who would you say has the upper hand right now, uh, now, maybe months from now, years from now, looking ahead? Well, right now, when you look at it, you have uh, OpenAI that's been out since about November, and they already have 100 million plus users on the daily. That engine is being uh, constantly bogged down. If you're a freemium user, then you're always uh, fighting for uh, you know, blog space per se uh, in that model. Uh, whereas Google, however, you know, they, their engine isn't even launched with the general population. However, uh, Google's engine itself is Google search. And that's been around for, for almost decades now. And so 
Google search does give Bard the upper hand uh, to OpenAI's model. However, it's yet to be seen how functional that front end interface will be for the user base. Of course, uh, technological advances uh, often, maybe always, have a downside to them, right? I mean, the car was a big advancement over the horse, but cars kill more people in a year than horses ever did. And there's a lot of concern out there about artificial intelligence. There's concern that students are going to use it and are using it already to to cheat, uh, that other industries are going to use it to fool people in terms of uh, disinformation and misinformation. How do we guard against what is becoming an increasingly sophisticated industry? Yeah, I mean, the industry has been been becoming more and more sophisticated ever since Google search came out, you know, in the early 2000s. Uh, You know, students and educators, uh, they they had similar uh, issues with, you know, the open internet and people being able to access information freely and openly. However, we do see the impacts and the implications of that where you, as you have more open access to information, you do have more, uh, you know, competition. You have better uh, advancements that come from places that you wouldn't even think about. Um, And you have more people that are able to, you know, find that education. So with these tools that are coming out, it's definitely decreasing uh, the limitation to knowledge. However, it does heighten the, the value of of the ability to use that knowledge that is now freely open and available and accessible to provide more advanced insights, which you, even if you are quote unquote cheating as a student, you still have to do that extra thought work to provide and produce something that is truly unique. And arguably that's going to be harder and harder, which actually makes, you know, education from that perspective, even more uh, valuable when you're leveraging AI. All right, Aaron, thank you. Again, that's Aaron Rafferty. He's CEO of the tech startup company Standard Dow. Right now, though, President Biden getting ready for his State of the Union address tonight on Capitol Hill. It's his first major speech to a divided Congress. The president will have Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy sitting right behind him. Mariana Alfaro is a reporter for The Washington Post and co-anchor for Post Politics Now. Thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So I remember last year uh, watching the State of the Union and Nancy Pelosi, of course, would have been behind uh, President Biden then. And it looked like she couldn't just wait long enough to applaud almost everything that Mr. Biden had to say, even before he said it. Uh, That's not going to be, I take it, the reaction from the new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, behind him, right? Yeah, no, don't expect any of that. I mean, I think um, uh, this is McCarthy's first uh, State of the Union, you know, a speaker, and this is the first time that uh, Biden will address a Republican-led House. So the dynamics are a little bit different. What we do know is that there's some, a bit of an effort to kind of show a little bit of bipartisanship, a little, a little bit of peace. Today, um, the speaker sent guidance to his caucus, to the Republicans, saying you need to behave. Um, you know, you, you have to you behave yourselves. We don't want any expressions of um, that could become viral or become negative press. So um, at least they've been told uh, that you don't want anything like we saw last year when Lauren Boebert um, heckled the president as he was talking about the dangers that U.S. troops face. And that became like a big yeah. viral moment. But I'm so cur- at least don't expect that. Yeah, but I'm <laughs> curious, though, uh, how much control does Mr. McCarthy really have over mm-hmm. his fellow Republicans? Because, as you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he pretty much sold his soul in order to yeah. get to the position of Speaker of the House. Can he really mm-hmm. control them? 
Yeah, that's a big question. The thing right now is that, um, again, as you mentioned, he did give them a lot of concessions to the more, more extreme side of the party um, in order to become speaker. Um, and, and he's still in negotiations right now, um, you know, to, oh, sorry, that's my dog, uh, to see what's going to happen uh, with the debt ceiling, with a lot of the things that Republicans want. And they definitely got a lot from him in terms of rules changes in the House. They're really much getting their way. So I think he kind of has a little bit of control on them right now, at least when it comes to, hey, we're in the middle of a debt ceiling negotiation situation with the president and other Democrats, like, please don't ruin this for the party right now. Um, I think that that's kind of how he has them um, a little bit under control at the moment. Yeah, uh, Mariana, obviously, he's going to say the State of the Union is strong. He's going to talk up the economy, (laughs) uh, jobs. He will get cheers from fellow Democrats. He'll get some shade from Republicans. But will he be able to sell it to Americans? I think that's what most people are wondering heading in. Yes. That's the biggest question. And again, I think, you know, we have the State of the Union tonight. That means that 2024 pretty much starts <laughs> right after. And what we're going to see today is very much a President Biden who's going to run for re-election. I mean, he hasn't officially announced, but that is what we all expect. And so the pitch today is what we're going to be hearing over and over and over again for the next year um, as the campaign begins. And so that's, again, as I said, the biggest question is, where will Americans believe this? And yesterday we had a poll out uh, with ABC saying that most Americans think that Biden hasn't really achieved anything. Uh, during this presidency. And again, we have the facts to back that that is wrong. You know, he's, there's been a lot done in the last few years. Um, but again, I think that the president hasn't done a big, good job of selling it to the people. Um, and so I expect to see a new renewed pitch tonight. Um, hopefully not the same things that we've been hearing over the last two years. Mariana, there's a, we kind of have a, a unofficial custom on the show. Whenever we have a guest <laughs> who has a dog or cat that makes a guest appearance, we always try to find out because otherwise our audience wants to know. So what kind of dog... <laughs> do you have oh he's a maltese poodle so a maltese poodle oh okay how old he's uh nine years old um very small he's like 10 pounds but he's very loud (laughs) (laughs) dallas his name's dallas okay um do you think though that you know because the poll numbers are so bad for the president and (laughs) and the way the public perceives a television performance or a radio performance is very very important of course the mm-hmm. fact that he's probably going to get a somewhat tepid response, at least from the Republican part, even if they behave themselves, mm-hmm. um, isn't that likely to be sort of telegraphed to the television audience at home and reinforce mm-hmm. almost like an echo chamber the impression that he's not a successful president? Yes, that is definitely a risk. And I think that, um, again, you know, Biden is not, um, I, I guess, quote unquote, made for TV as many presidents that came before him. Um, he definitely, you know, has very strong speeches and, and sometimes he does ramble a little bit. Um, but I do think that there is a consideration that I was making of like, you know, this is the one shot they have at launching this new, um, you know, this this new phase in the presidency and pretty much the, the campaign. And so I do expect, um, you know, uh, to see a better effort from Democrats, at least to cheer the loud as they can. But again, there's always just that risk that it gets. Again, the, the people are, might not be fully sold just based on what Republicans are going to be reacting, which is why I find it fascinating, you know, that Kevin McCarthy is making an effort to at least not make it, not not get a, a Roddy caucus in there. Should also point out, this is not mm-hmm. how he likes to address a crowd. He hates yeah. the stationary microphone. If you look at him at any of the speeches he gives, there'll be the lectern, the, the, the usually the one or two microphones up there, and then he's got the handheld mm-hmm. mic. Uh, he won't have that tonight. And I think... Yeah. You, you take that into account and the fact that, uh, God bless him, he can be a bit of a a, uh, a gaffe machine, um, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Uh, will you be watching for that as well tonight? Yes, um, because we, 
as you mentioned, it happens a lot. And the thing with uh, President Biden, as you mentioned, he loves walking around the stage. He loves really getting close to the people. Sometimes he brings, you know, members of the audience up. He's very much a president who, like, wants to engage um, as he's giving a speech. But um, there's a really good article in The New York Times this morning about just how um, all of the prep that's gone into making sure that the GAV level is low, that, you know, he has to work with a stutter, he has to work, um, you know, making sure that there are no um, words that might make him, you know, you know, trick him off into like some some rant or some word that might, um, uh, you know, the, 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 that, that might lose his, his train of thought. Um, and so I think that um, there's definitely way more prep, I think, than expected, or, or at least in before years. And, but I definitely think the White House is keenly aware that any of those moments, you know, could go viral and could hurt um, the image that they're trying to portray. Have to admit, I feel a little bit guilty for saying gaff machine when talking about the president on the air. But hey, <laughs> as a personal gaff machine, I guess I, I'm entitled. Well, you're being, <laughs> you're being well, Chris is being diplomatic. Uh, the president is known for for putting his foot firmly yeah, in his mouth. Let's yeah, put it that way. Yeah. So, uh, Mariana, thank you again. That uh, we've been joined by Mariana Alfaro. She's a reporter with the Washington Post, co-anchor of uh, Post Politics Now. Ever the diplomat, you. Right now, though, President Biden's body language might be able to tell us more about what he'll uh, say tonight during the State of the Union than, than the words he actually uses. Often it's how something is said that can be far more impactful than what's said. Jess Ponce is a body language expert, co-founder of Media 2 Times 3 Jess, thanks for joining us today. First of all, how does President Biden go about being a commanding presence, not just uh, in, in the House chambers, but on television as well? Well, you know, he has a challenge uh, because of his stutter, and it is something that he has to face head on. And what he does in order to prepare for that is to actually get really clear on his message. And I think that's the first step. So there is what does he want to convey and how does he want to convey it? Because quite often, the way in which we speak is impacted by what we think internally. So, for example, if you have a speech impediment like a stutter or a lisp like myself, you grew up with this sort of um, criticism in, in not only the way that people reacted to you, but how you react to yourself. And the very first conversation any one of us has is with ourselves. And so if you have doubt on what you're going to say, that is already another impediment. But if you are looking at very clearly the way you want to come across, that'll help you with your words, and that'll also help you with your cadence. So he spends weeks and weeks preparing. We were talking in our previous segment, Jess, about how uh, President Biden has a fondness for roaming around the stage when he can. Uh, He did that a lot during the uh, primaries. But of course, during the uh, uh, speech tonight, the uh, State of the Union, He's kind of locked in, right? He's behind a podium. He's in the House chambers. Um, Does that positioning help or hurt somebody like Joe Biden? Uh, Is he better off that he's stationary and he's got this podium and the mic and he can't move about? Or is he better off if he had a hand mic and was roaming around somehow? Well, when we move around in our body, what we are doing is we are giving ourselves sort of landing points so that you can say, okay, I'm going to make this statement here, and then I'm going to go to this part of the stage and then connect and go on to another point. So when someone is stationary, you have to be able to do that in a certain way. 
So I'll be really curious to see if his facial features or the direction in which he looks give him that quote, end quote, sort of landing point to be able to adjust and go on to another talking point. I, I still remember the prompter went down on Bill Clinton during one of his State of the Unions. Uh, he was forced to ad lib much of it. That in mind, should this president or any president for that matter know their content so well that if need be, they're ready to wing it? Absolutely. So uh, Bill Clinton is a very charismatic speaker. He is someone who likes to take charge on stage. He radiates that charisma both on stage and in person. For someone like President Biden or any president, being prepared with your content and be very clear on two things, not only the information you want to convey, but how you want to come across or connect with the audience is of utmost importance. So I would imagine if that happened to somebody like President Biden, he would pause, he would think about where he wants this to land with people. And then he might stumble for a moment, as would any individual, but quickly pick up speed and continue. Can the audience tell from body language, from the president's body language tonight, whether he's telling the truth about something? Yes. And we also have to go into it realizing that our own biases play a part in that. If we are looking for him to stumble, if we are looking for a quote unquote lie, or if we are looking for the truth and we are also empathetic to the fact that this man has a sort of longer preparation than most in terms of how he has to prepare for when he is speaking in front of a stage, that really impacts our view on whether or not he is lying or telling the truth. Now, face to face, there are some really easy cues to tell if someone's lying such as eye avoidance, are reaffirming the same statement over and over and wanting to, once you reiterate that statement, move on to something else. What I think will be a telltale sign is how he follows up on these things and also the statistics that he or any other president use to substantiate any claim or information they are making. All right. We'll be watching tonight. Jess, thank you again. That's Jess Ponce. He is a body language expert, co-founder of Media 2 Times 3. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens in for Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, deaths due directly to COVID-19 infections have been on the decline, yet the state public health department says California's death rate has increased by 20% since 2020. Now, that raises the question of why are these excess excess deaths happening? And are they directly or perhaps indirectly related to the pandemic? Dr. Andrew Neumer is a professor of population health and disease prevention at UC Irvine. Doctor, thanks for being with us again. Thank you for having me on KNX. So uh, I guess that is the, the main question. We're seeing more Californians dying than before the pandemic. Is there a connection in some way, shape or form with the pandemic? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's I would say, quite directly related. I mean, these are these are deaths that are not being coded as COVID deaths as the underlying cause of death. But COVID has um, impacted, you know, the mortality of Californians and and people elsewhere, there are strokes and heart attacks that that follow in the wake of COVID infection. And uh, you know, in the coming years, we're going to find out uh, how long this effect lasts. But in the meantime, mortality is up. 
Well, let me ask you this. Right. If, if you have a loved, loved one or a close friend who, who passed away from name the illness, is there a way a person can know if that person, that loved one, their death was in any way COVID related? No, not, not, not directly. Uh, uh, frankly, uh, that's an excellent question, but you know, the, if, if someone died of, uh, you know, of a heart attack or of a stroke, uh, then, you know, it, was it, was it, uh, exacerbated by a prior COVID infection? It's, it's really hard to say on an individual level, of whether or not that's the case, you know, we're seeing about a 1.2 year decrease in life expectancy at age 65 in the United States in 2021 compared to 2019. So basically, you know, most of these deaths are in people 65 and over. And, uh, you know, basically people's retirements will on average last about a year and a half less uh, due to premature mortality uh, because of the, you know, the durable effect of, of COVID. The pandemic may be over, in in many people's minds and, and in many of your your listeners' minds, but the the there are these durable uh, effects of COVID. It's not like the nineteen eighteen flu, which which kind of vanished. But let me ask COVID you: COVID is lingering. All right, but let me ask you this because uh, I mean, you know, the pandemic certainly has become a a political as well as medical issue. And, you know, there's been this kind of tug of war for the past three years between California and our good friends in the state of Florida. And, you know, Florida had uh, less stringent lockdowns uh, than we did in California. Uh, A lot of the population were far less diligent than many people here in California were when it came to wearing masks, that sort of thing. Is there any evidence that the death rate increase uh, is more or less in Florida than it is here in California. It's it's more according to what the data I've seen. Okay, health. So yeah, is it by a significant degree? Uh, it depends what you call significant. Um, I mean, I mean, you know, one thing that I think might help your KNX listeners understand what we're talking about here is, you know, life expectancy at age sixty five is is less than it was in twenty nineteen. Uh, it's been it's been knocked back to around levels of uh, the year 1999. Okay, so so your listeners who are around age 65 were all alive in 1999, and they as was I, and and we remember that you know 1999 didn't seem like uh, we were all living under a dark cloud, right? 1999 seemed you know great yeah. uh, at the time. So you really have to pour over the actuarial tables to understand the changes we're seeing. So it's not like, Oh, well, there's so much more death now. And I mean, a 20%, you know, increase in mortality corresponds to a, a lot smaller change in survivorship. And uh, since the you know, we're biased by the living, you know, people pay more attention to changes in survivorship, which are a lot less than, um, than 20%. So if, if 1% of people in an age group die in a given year, and now it's 1.2%, that, that still means that, you know, not 98% plus are surviving. And that's what people focus on. So, so your listeners, you know, unless they're pouring over like actuarial tables are, aren't going to notice this. And, and that's why uh, people kind of shake their heads and look and say, well, we'll look at Florida, you know, aren't they doing just fine? Well, I mean, if you if you if you crunch the numbers, California is doing better than Florida, quite frankly. 
All right. Dr. Neumer, thank you again. That is Dr. Andrew Neumer, Professor of Population Health and Disease Prevention at UC Irvine. The Grammys were moving along smoothly on Sunday until the end when Harry Styles won Album of the Year and then said this. I'm just so... uh, This doesn't happen to people like me very often, and this is so, so nice. Thank you very, very much. That created a buzz from the Beehive on social media. The Beehive is the collective of Beyonce fans online. Uh, that's what they call themselves. Some of them slamming Styles. They made comments about Styles and uh, his having white privilege. They also criticized the Grammys for what they perceived was a snub to Beyonce, even though she won multiple Grammys that night. A.J. Swinson is a cultural analyst, lifestyle expert, joins us now on In-Depth. A.J., thank you. First of all, do Beyonce fans have a point here? Was she, in fact, snubbed? And did Harry Styles sound tone deaf? Yeah, I, you know, Harry Styles, I'll give it to him. He's talented. Um, You know, he's an actor as well as a singer, um, he, he did sound a bit tone deaf. He should have explained what he meant. He could have said, you know, as an English artist or, you know, as someone coming from where he came from. I mean, he won from an, uh, you know, Simon Cowell chose him, put him in one direction, and now he struck it on his own as a solo artist. Um, the Beehive, as Beyonce fans are called, they're upset because Beyonce has never won Album of the Year. But, yeah, but, um, but as a matter of fact, but, but she, she's but, never won Best New Actress, right. Song of the Year, Record of the Year. She's never won any of these things. But yet people sit back and they say, uh, didn't we see the headlines that say that she's now the most decorated uh, recording artist in history? Right. So that's the thing. Despite the fact that she's never won in what you could say the big four categories, she is the winningest Grammy singer ever. She's won 32 awards. Um, and also keep in mind, she's been in this business for a long time. Um, and she's, I mean, the accolades she's gotten, she's gotten her flowers in her career. And for this album to win album of the year just wouldn't have made sense. I mean, even as an honest Beyonce fan, you wouldn't say that this was the best album of the year. You wouldn't even say that this was the best of her albums. For those who might be listening right now and saying, hey, this is simply political correctness gone too far, would they have a point? Well, Beyonce's fans are known to be, uh, you know, very rabid. (laughs) They're known to quickly attack people that they think have slighted Beyonce. I would say that she has been snubbed from awards in the past, but this was not a time where that happened. But I am curious because because when people say, as they are, that she's been snubbed, she was snubbed for album of the year, and you pointed out a couple of other categories, it, it's hard to to reconcile that with all those other awards, the thirty two that you mentioned, that she has won over the years. It, it it's hard to, I would think, to justify the word snub when somebody keeps winning award after award after award, even if perhaps. They're not all the award categories that her fans in particular would prefer. I mean, does that make sense or no? Oh, definitely. Uh, To act as if Beyonce hasn't been celebrated, you know, given every opportunity in the world to promote her music, 
um, she's been treated like music royalty. And a lot of musicians don't get that in their lifetime to the level that she has. I mean, uh, from the she's been invited to experience, you know, politically, politicians have, you know, she's done concerts for them. I mean, she has ha been given so many different opportunities and incredible chances to showcase her music. You know, there, there's, I'm sure there's no complaints for her. And she graciously accepted her award. She thanked God for protecting her. She's not looking for these awards. This is her you know, her fans, the beehive, you know, making noise, showing how loyal they are to her. I think that's all this really is. AJ, tell me, has Harry Styles responded in any way, offering any kind of an apology? And if not, you think he will? Well, I, you know, Harry Styles, I, he should maybe clarify what he said. He hasn't so far from what I've seen, but here's the thing. He should be able to enjoy his moment he should be able to be happy. He had a great third album that was a bestseller. He's had a record-breaking tour. You know, we don't need to make this us versus them with everything. And I'm really hoping that that type of behavior will stop. Yeah, when I was mentioning political correctness before, us versus them, we, we tend to make that the case so many times here. Yeah. And I'm wondering if the Beehive maybe is, is guilty of doing that here. But they are protective of Queen Bee. Yeah. AJ, thank oh, you yeah. <laughs> very much. So, AJ, thank you again. That's AJ Swinson, uh, cultural analyst and lifestyle expert. That'll do it for this edition of KNX In Depth. Uh, thanks so much for joining us.